Welcome back to the Travel Commando podcast, everybody. Today, my buddy Chris is going to be interviewing me about my trip to Egypt. So, with no ado, ladies and gentlemen, Chris. Hello. Hi, Jim. What's up? Hey, not much. Thanks for having me. No worries, man. Thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. Very well. Can't wait to post this one. <laughs> and in closing, I'd like to say... <laughs> <laughs> We're done. Let's get Let's started. Let's get out of here. All right. All right. So, Jim, uh, when you go to Egypt, what airline usually takes you there? Um, I flew on Emirates from New York, just JetBlue uh, across the U.S. to New York. Mm-hmm. And then Emirates for the big hop across. Okay. What uh, what class did you fly? I flew Emirates Economy. Do you recommend that for such a long flight? Yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> um, I had, uh, I mean, obviously everybody thinks of Emirates as being a super luxury carrier, and usually people are thinking of Emirates first class or business yeah. class, right, with the seats that convert into beds and all of that. I didn't have any of that. Emirates Economy was, you know, a little bit better than standard uh, U.S. economy flying, I would mm-hmm. say. It, it certainly upgraded from that experience. Yeah. But as far as did I have the Emirates experience, I, I would say what I had was a little hit and miss. Um, my first flight from New York across the ocean was on a uh, <clears throat> on an A380, and that was a really great plane. Mm-hmm. A lot of really great technology, everything nice and new. Um, comfortable flight. I like the way they have the, uh, I don't like the cycles on which they run it, but they have the whole light-dark cycle program to get you to sleep when they want you to sleep. And they've got the situation going where the ceiling looks like a star field and all of that. It's really, it's a very upscale experience for coach or economy flying in that sense. But overall, my experience was really hit and miss in that that first flight, again, was on an A380, the crew was superb, really what you expect from the uh, Emirates propaganda, right, uh, or the uh, advertising, rather. Mm-hmm. Um, top-notch service. Uh, I do feel like they could have brought the bar cart around <clears throat> a little more for such a long flight, but, you know, I also realize, you know, the country of origin for that airline and that there are religious considerations and that maybe you're just not going to see the bar cart yeah. that often. Yeah. I never did try to call for a drink. I probably could have. Um, not that big a deal. Um, I did some commuter flying while I was over there, though. I had a couple of commuter flights, and those were, at best, just average flying experiences. A little bit disappointing, in fact. Um, And they were on 777s, -hmm. and that plane just didn't compare. So that was a real letdown. And then... When I went to the airport to fly home after all that time over there, I was so stoked to know I was getting back on an A380 and was going to have that experience on the way home. And my first major disappointment was when I got to the airport and I was going to be flying back across the ocean on a 777. Oh, no. And then uh, it was not a good experience, among other issues. Um, and I typically don't tend to cry too much about this type of thing. And there's a, there's a particular uh, motivational podcast out there, and I know the people behind that podcast would jump all over me for even saying a word about this. But when you're on a 15-hour flight, 17-hour flight, with an airline that has touted itself as being a luxury airline in every way and which has touted its entertainment system as being untouchable by any other airline in the world and absolutely the best there is, 
and that entertainment system crashes a few hours into mm. a 15 to 18 hour flight um, and you can't sleep, that's a really difficult thing to accept, right? And I probably wouldn't even be mentioning this except for the fact that Emirates does really tout that system and their airline, you know, as being just such a such an upscale experience. And I was barely hanging in there. It had been a long trip. I was really exhausted. I was already crushed to be back on a 777. Mm -hmm. And uh, I really couldn't sleep. I was having a rough time anyway. The entertainment system was basically what I had to rely on, man. And uh, it started getting really dodgy, not responding to the on-screen commands, mm -hmm. doing other things. You'd press a function and it would perform another function. And um, it took me a while to realize that it wasn't just my seat, that it was happening to the whole section. Mm -hmm. And right about that time, the time I had that realization, a flight attendant noticed that we were all aggravated and came over and uh, reset the system, which took like an hour and it never reset properly. And I just, I, I had a miserable flight home and a big part of the reason for that was the situation with their ice entertainment system and again I hate to grumble about internet or movie access on the plane but that situation flight. was bad yeah, yeah. Um, and I didn't you know I thought about writing the airline about it or you know just if nothing else to, not seeking compensation but to let them know, you know hey this was kind of major and you might need to redo some electronics on this yeah. plane but I, I never even wrote them I I just had such a bad taste in my mouth I wasn't even sure if I would fly them again after right. that yeah um, so my advice to people would be, if you're going to fly Emirates, hope you're on an A380 and hope that the entertainment system has been maintained. Okay, good yeah. advice, good advice. So when you actually got there, where did you wind up staying? Uh, well, <laughs> I stayed in Giza for the first six days, and I recommend against that, yeah. <laughs> Don't stay in Giza for six days. Oh, what's up? Uh, it's desolate, and other than visiting <laughs> the pyramids and the Sphinx, there's really uh, nothing to do unless you're volunteering. Yeah. <clears throat> and you should know that if you're directly at the site, if you're uh, directly in proximity to the pyramids or the Sphinx, um, your accommodations are likely to be quite humble, mm. um, and you're going to get hassled by locals all the time. Uh, there's going to be the, do you want a taxi guy? There's going to be the, um, <laughs> the shopkeeper rules that street. Everybody with a shop in the area is going to try to get you to come in, um, and they're going to try hard. And each of ten different guys is going to wear you out trying to get you to use them as a guide to the yeah. pyramids. People are going to yell across the street at you. Um, so they know you're a tourist and they're trying to make some money. Oh, Yeah. Um, let me tell you what getting there from Cairo was like. Sure. Uh, that is the single most adventurous drive I've ever taken in my lifetime. <laughs> um, first of all, as I'm coming out of the Cairo airport, this guy starts sh shouting at me that he's my ride, right, inside the okay. airport. And so I go over there, and it turns out I've just fallen for the first scam, right? He's not my <laughs> right ride at all. He's just, yeah. he's just a guy hawking taxis. And, uh, you know, you hear the pronouns you and me, and you think the conversation's about you and this other guy, and it's not. It's yeah. about somebody trying to, you know, scam you into a $500 taxi right. ride or something like that. Um, but I got past that, got by him and all that, and got outside. And... Uh, 
Emerging from the Cairo airport, if you have a ride waiting for you, is like walking onto the red carpet at the Oscars, right? There's this barricade across the street and just hundreds of hired car drivers and yeah. guides and stuff, all with signs and waving signs and shouting people's names. It's like, let's make a deal, right? Yeah. That's kind of what it reminds yeah, yeah, me yeah. of, too. And I finally, like, there should have been just flash cubes going off in this crowd, but, it, you know, they were there for a different purpose. And I finally found my guy. And uh, super guy. His name was Ibrahim. Shout out to Ibrahim. Um, my driver for the hotel had my name on his card, and uh, we matched my ID and his little information packet and all that. And uh, just a, we hit it off right away. Had a great time even just walking to the car, got out onto the road. Um, it was approaching sunset fairly late in the afternoon. And I took my first picture in Egypt about three minutes after leaving the airport and getting on the road because... Uh, I knew I was in Africa, right, in a very foreign environment. It was quite obvious. And there was a Pink Floyd sticker on the back of the car in front of us. So I had to get a picture of that. And uh, pretty quickly the, situa the situation degenerated uh, <laughs> in, the, in some significant ways. The infrastructure in that area is not strong. Mm -hmm. um, the infrastructure including the roads and... Uh, <laughs> Gosh, man, just stuff had just crumbled and fallen apart. Buildings just lying out in the road, never been cleaned up, right? People just immediately develop a habit of starting a route around stuff that falls into the road. Yeah. And um, all the barricades in the middle of the roads were crumbled and lying in the road and stuff. And traffic was utterly lawless, okay? Mm. No, no conditions applied. Um, it was definitely every person for him or herself. Yeah. Uh, and there were people walking in it, even on the just freeway. Just on the street? Really? Yeah, it was so crazy, man. Just on the highway, just people crossing, <laughs> just walking through traffic. And there were animals. I mean, it's kind of hard to describe. It was like a, like P.T. Barnum took acid and his head exploded onto the wall. <laughs> yeah. And somebody took a photo <laughs> of it. Getting and a picture of it here. It, yeah, it was... <laughs> So hard to describe. Um, not good, yeah, but yeah. fascinating. Mm -hmm. Okay, and uh, there's a language of honks. Mm -hmm. Each different type of vehicle has its own vocabulary. You know, I started perceiving this, and then the cabbie explained it all to me. And uh, it's it, it's like at all times he was trying to do 55 and can only do eight, mm -hmm. right? Just crazy, and of course hot. And um, after we'd been out on the road like 15, 20 minutes, the sun started setting. And I got a whole different view of Cairo at that point, mm. right? Like we drove by the Citadel as the sun was behind it. And I'm just looking up at this ancient fortress from the Crusades on top of this bluff, silhouetted in black mm -hmm. against the sun. And uh, just starting that, that feeling really started to sink in. You're on the other side of the planet now, yeah. son, right? Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> eventually... We turned down, we crossed the Nile into Giza, and there was what appeared to be fog immediately, and I felt instantly like I had a sinus infection, <laughs> and uh, I realized, oh, no, this is pollution, and it's significant, yeah. and we hit it like a curtain, <clears throat> and right as that happened, we turned down this road that, I don't know what the worst place you've ever been in your life is, but I know what the worst place I've ever been is. <laughs> and it was this road, man. Mm. Um, 
and it was miles long. It was a dirt road, horrible conditions. I don't know how the car survived it. Have you seen the movie Jacob's Ladder? Yes. From the early 90s? Yeah. Do you remember the scene when they took Jacob to X-Ray? Yeah, yeah. Turning down that road was like that. Oh, wow. Like, like, yes. like, like, I mean, it was just people, right? But it was like demons coming out of the yeah. dark and stuff. And <laughs> just, it was just a, t- it looked very, I, I mean, I don't mean to offend anyone in Giza. That's not how I mean this. But to give, to give Americans, <laughs> to give Americans an image to which they can relate, it looked very Black Hawk Down-ish mm. where okay. we were. Yeah, very reminiscent Mogadishu. of, yeah, yeah, really reminiscent of that. Um, and just people, again, just coming out across the road from nowhere, barefoot. Um, I'm pretty sure I saw a dead dog in a pool of blood lying in this road. I mean, it was a, it was a wild experience. And then finally, I, I'm, I'm not even sure how long it took. We finally turned down this street that turns out to be the street to the hotel, right? And uh, I realize we're on the hotel street when I look to my right and I get my first glimpse of the pyramids. Mm. And it's night... So what I get is, and it's only one pyramid, it's, it was either the Great Pyramid or the Pyramid of Khafre. Um, what I, really what it was, was a black triangle against a star field. Yeah. Because it was pitch black night. But I remember gasping hard when I saw that. And it was totally involuntary. I looked up and saw that and I was like, oh, that's it. Wow. Right? And then pretty quickly after that, we were rolling through these bomb barricades that they wheel into the streets at night mm. and uh, crank to a stop. I look over we're in front of the hotel. I open the door and step out and put my foot right in a pile of camel shit. <laughs> Classic. Not a problem you see here very often. Not too it? often, yeah. no. Not, you know, not like you might think. Yeah. <laughs> um, just, a, just a classic arrival in Giza, man. Uh, so you've described it as desolate, polluted, poor infrastructure, and people are trying to scam you. What's the trade-off for that? Well, <laughs> the trade-off for that is the unbelievable, awe-inspiring experience of waking up in the morning, throwing open the curtain, and seeing the pyramids and the sphinx right oh, there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right, right Right there. That's what you think of when you Im- think of Egypt. Yeah, yeah, immediately in front of you. That's the trade-off. Um, and of you know being able to go up and hang out on the roof of the hotel oh, and look wow. at the pyramids yeah. and the Sphinx. And um, you know, I'll, I'll talk about the pyramids for a minute. Um, first of all, there's really no way to describe the experience of seeing them and certainly of being out there among them, mm-hmm. right? Um, you have the three main pyramids. If you're, if you're facing face-to-face with the Sphinx, the pyramids are from right to left. The Great Pyramid, the Pyramid of Khafre, and then the Little Pyramid off on your left, the Pyramid of Menkaria. Mm-hmm. Um, each has its fascinating features and um, you know, reasons for disinterest. Uh, the Great Pyramid is called that because it's obviously the biggest. Um, it doesn't necessarily look that way when you're out on the plateau. The Pyramid of Khafre has a way of appearing to be bigger. But um, Khufu built the Great Pyramid. His son Khafre built the Pyramid of Khafre. And his grandson Menkaria built the Pyramid of Menkaria. Mm-hmm. Um, the Great Pyramid, again, the biggest by far. <clears throat> 
There have been robberies. Um, there's an entrance open on one side of the pyramid that you can climb up to and oh, wow. go into the pyramid. I did not do that because I was uh, just I was just suffering some travel fatigue. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> it was pretty hot. But it's <clears throat> indescribably fascinating to stand next to it and just contemplate the situation, you know. And the Pyramid of Khafre is stunning. People, the Pyramid of Khafre is the one... It still has the limestone caps at the top, and there's a giant band of stone missing around the middle that has been taken off for use in other parts of Cairo over mm -hmm. the millennia, and also has simply uh, fallen away. Um, and I don't know why, but my greatest fascination is with that particular pyramid. Part of it is because it has the causeway running all the way out to the Sphinx, and part of it is because you can kind of just see the history of it, where there are still the capstones, and then the missing layer that was removed for use, and then the lower layer that looks like the other two pyramids. Yeah. You know, you can't really say for sure whether that was ever covered in capstones or mm -hmm. not. We take the word of historians that it was at one point. Um, and the Pyramid of Mancaria is a really interesting experience. You'd be, instinctively, you're tempted to dismiss it because it's so much smaller than the others. And it appears to have this gruesome scar on the front mm -hmm. where it's been, you know, where grave robbery has taken place. But another way to look at it is that you can walk all the way around it in no time, right? Um, that you can get really up close to it and spend some time there. You're allowed to climb a little bit on that one. They'll let you do some climbing. Um, definitely don't try to do it on your own without being told to by a guide or, or uh, a guard. Um, but that pyramid has some uh, additional tombs. Mm. Um, you can't go into them. Sometimes they're closed. It has some additional small, even smaller pyramids. Um, the Great Pyramid has three smaller pyramids next to it, which were supposedly for Menkaria's wives or uh, possibly his mother and wives. And I actually did go into one of those. Um, and it was a really weird experience. They're very into getting you to do things they think you must want to do, mm -hmm. the, the guides and guards who actually work at the pyramids. Uh, for example, when I went into the small pyramid, they wanted me to lie in the empty crypt. They just assumed <laughs> I, I wanted to lie in there and get a picture, right? And I couldn't have been less interested in doing that. Yeah. And basically, it's like a bathtub carved into the stone floor of a yeah. room, right? Um, I wanted to take some pictures of it, but th they were very insistent that I, you know, of course, you've come all the way to Egypt, you have to yeah. lie in the crypt, and they get you to lie in there and take <laughs> your picture. And um, They try to charge you for it? <laughs> there's nothing they don't try to charge yeah. you for, man. Yes, they charge I'll me for it. Um, there's a real problem with stuff like people asking for tips inside a tomb and mm. then getting in line for tips again outside. Oh, wow. Because <clears throat> you're, like, supposed to... The, basically, the rule is if you can see a person, tip the person, I think. Yeah. And there, there is a lot of that going on. They definitely scam hard for tips. Mm. And the tips themselves are a scam in that, like I said, people will get in line for tips twice and they know you're not going to say, I already tipped you. Yeah. Because then everybody's going to say, well, how come, I, how come I haven't been tipped twice? And, the, <laughs> the, the, you know, they... They have a very complicated game yeah. going on. Yeah. Yeah. How much do you typically have to tip, or are you expected to tip in these situations? Ridiculously more than you expect. Really? Yeah. yeah I would expect it to be cheap, just as the as a stereotype. Yeah. You know, a lot of little money goes yeah. a long way. And I, I tip well in general, mm -hmm. and when I go do something like that, I feel like I tip very well. And 
they wanted three to five times oh, well. what I would ordinarily tip. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And if if you want to, let's talk hard dollars. How much? Oh, here's the best hard dollar example I can give you. Um, it's hard to say really about the guys taking you in and out of the tombs and yeah. stuff because it's, it happens too quickly and it happens a lot. But first of all, don't go near a camel if you don't want to spend all the money you have. Okay. That's, that, that's a very good piece of advice for people going to Egypt. And they're going, here's the thing, you're going to listen to this advice, you're going to try to take this advice, they're going to get you on a camel. <laughs> Okay, and it's probably going to happen more than once, no matter how hard you try to resist it. Yeah. Um, they're going to find a way to make it happen. You're good. They're going to get you next to a camel, thinking you're not getting on it, that you're just standing there for somebody to take your picture. Somehow they're going to do something to get you on a camel. And then the guy who minds the camel is going to say, he'll take pictures of you with the pyramids and the sphinx in the background, right? Awesome. Fantastic. Yeah, sounds great. And in my head, I'm, you know, he, he doesn't mention a charge, right? So in my head, I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to tip this guy really well mm -hmm. for doing this, right? And he took me around and took several pictures, and I start to notice he's walking the camel a little further away from the road with each rotation to take a picture, oh, wow. right? <clears throat> and this is how the scam works. They get you away from the road out into this really rocky area where you can't possibly jump off the camel, even if you wanted to jump off a camel, which you don't because you're mm -hmm. 15 feet in the air, Right. And he takes all the pictures and stuff, hands you your camera back, and then tells you what it's going to cost to get off the camel. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> and it's 80 bucks. And you're not just going to jump off this thing. No, you, you couldn't if you wanted to. Yeah. And uh, it's $80. Oh, wow. Yeah. And That's I was such thinking... Such a specific amount. Yeah. And I was thinking, oh, this is awesome. I'm, I'm for sure going to give this guy 25 bucks when yeah. I get off here. Right? Which would have been pretty generous in a lot of places. Mm -hmm. um, and they will tell you... Not, this didn't happen on this occasion, but they will tell you, you need to tip more. You need to tip more. Mm. And they'll tell you, like, how much your tip would equate to in the U.S. and all this stuff. It's it's an interesting Yeah, it sounds, scam. It sounds like they've got it down, though. They know what they're doing. Oh, they totally do, dude. Yeah. They, um, they're experts at it. There was one point at which um, <laughs> I was out on the plateau with a guide one day. By the way, take a guide. Don't hire the guys at the fence. Okay. We'll, we'll get into more of that later. Hire a guide before you go, a professional guide. Um, we passed an American or Canadian couple that had somehow managed to get out onto the plateau without accompaniment. Mm -hmm. I don't know how they did it. I'll never understand how they did it. They make that impossible for <laughs> you. But this couple asked my guide how to get somewhere on the plateau, and my guide told them. And immediately this guy rode up on a horse and told him off in Arabic. Okay, this guy assumed I knew no Arabic, of course. Yeah. And he told him harshly in Arabic, you know you're supposed to tell them they have to have a guide. And my guy just basically, you know, waved him off. Yeah. Basically, kind of a fuck off kind of situation. Right. Um, because you absolutely are not required to have a guide. Yeah. It's, it's another, you know, there are a few negative aspects of doing this particular adventure, and this is one of the most negative, yeah. the, the way these guys behave at the pyramids. And... Uh, if you manage to get out there without a guide, which you're going to have to fight to do in all likelihood if you can even do it, somebody's still going to try and pin a guide to you. Um, I mean, I guess to a point, they have to have people out there to prevent tourists from just doing what they want and screwing stuff up, but nobody's doing that. Yeah. You know? 
Um, there's, they need to do a better job of it. There's, there's just so much to see out on the plateau that that's what these people need to be focusing on, not getting your money. Yeah. They need to have a pay scale, I think. Um, like, as far as so much more stuff out there than you would ever think, there are hundreds of structures out there. Mm. It's not just the pyramids and the Sphinx. There's all kinds of stuff out there. We do, we do not know what this looked like back in its day, okay? But it was incredibly impressive. Um, right next to the Great Pyramid is the Solar Boat Museum. Um, archaeologists actually dug up the solar boat that was buried to carry Khufu to the afterlife. And they've just kind of built a climate-controlled shell around it. Mm. And they charge a small additional admission. Um, and it's essentially a solar boat museum, but it's really an exhibit, yeah. right? Um, and I, I, let me offer this to the listeners. If you're interested in seeing it, and your guide tells you there's no need to pay to see that, there's a copy in the Egyptian museum, the copy is like four feet long, okay? Mm -hmm. So if you're interested in seeing the solar boat, tell your guide you want to pay the few extra bucks yeah, and, and see do. the solar boat. Um, I saw, believe it or not, <laughs> there's an area called uh, the Panorama on the plateau, uh, which, you know, as the name kind of implies, is elevated a little bit above the plateau and allows you to look out across it. And you can see all three pyramids from there and take amazing photographs. That's where they have you do all the... All the goofy tourist photographs, like making it look like you're spinning the pyramid with your fingertip, and you know they have you hold your arms up and they hold a rock in front of the <laughs> camera, so it looks like you're military tourist pressing stuff. a boulder yeah. and all that kind yeah. of stuff, you know. Um, but my first or second trip out to the panorama <laughs> was interrupted by a motorcycle rally. Mm. I couldn't believe what I was hearing at first, <laughs> right? Because I was turned away from the pyramids, talking yeah. to my guide. And I thought, is that hundreds of motorcycles in the distance, <laughs> right? Because there's no mistaking that sound, you know? And I turned around, and there was this, you know, it was pretty far from where I was, but I could see it was quite an enormous chain of bikers coming up between the pyramids on the road. And I looked at my guide, and he was like, yeah, they do this once in a while. And so I, kind of, I, I took it in as part of the experience, right? and watch this amazing bike rally come across the Giza Plateau through the Sahara, mm -hmm. up between the pyramids, up behind me and up, parked all around me on the panorama, and I went and checked out all their bikes. Super cool bikes, yeah. by the way. Um, and this is something they do, uh, I think it was every other month or something like that, they have a pyramids rally, which on one hand seems inappropriate, <laughs> but on the other hand, I have to say, being there for it was really, really cool. You know, it was a unique experience. I won't have that again. Yeah. You know? That's awesome. Um, Not something you think about. No. Uh, it never would have occurred to me. And neither would this. If you want to know what kind of money there is in soccer, check this out. Out behind the pyramids, not too terribly far from them, there was this uh, white bubble on the desert floor. Um, and I had the impression it was a new dig a new archaeological dig and that that structure was to protect it. And that's what somebody told me as well, uh, just someone on the street in Giza. Well, it turns out that's not what was going on. Um, that structure was huge. It was much bigger than it looked. And, uh, and I, I have some photographs of it that I can put online um, in association with the podcast. There's an Instagram page, folks, Travel Commando. Um, 
It was a structure built to enclose a private party at the pyramids mm. for a soccer team. Oh, wow. That's what kind of money there is yeah. in soccer. And again, it, it was out of place, but it was only there for like a day and a half mm -hmm. of, you know, of the six days I was there. And, you know, what an interesting experience to have been there to see it and see him take it down and realize what it was there for. And I'm sure they watched the Sound and Light show from it at night. Um, oh, and let me say a few words about that. The famous Sound and Light show at the Pyramids, where they light up the Pyramids different colors at night. And there's the narration from the Sphinx. Um, and a little laser show on the Great Pyramid. Um, I'm not going to say don't go. If you want to go see it, you should go see it. But I am going to warn you that it's pretty cheesy, okay, very dated, and even even in its era, mm -hmm. even when it was new, it, it was pretty cheesy. If you've ever seen the James Bond movie, um, it was either The Spy Who Loved Me or From Russia With Love. There's a scene set at the Sound and Light Theater and I always thought it had been cheesed up for the movie. No, they just filmed it as the show was going <laughs> yeah, on, and yeah. it really is that cheesy. Um, Hasn't been updated since? No, okay. no, and that's all I'm saying is it needs an update. They definitely shouldn't do away with it. It's a good thing to have at yeah. night, and it's a good way to bring in income. Mm -hmm. the th believe me, I stayed across the street from the amphitheater. It's full every night, four or five shows. Yeah. Um, but it does need an update, yeah. yeah. And it's also a little weird going out onto the plateau, to the pyramids, and you come around the corner, and there's a giant bank of colored lights there yeah. that's used for the show at yeah. night. And the show is so low-tech that those lights aren't even what gets used all the time anymore. I'm pretty sure there were times the illumination was provided by headlights from cars that have been mm. driven on, on, onto the plateau. So, again, you know, enjoy the show. It doesn't cost a whole lot to go. Um, but expect it to be kind of cheesy. Okay. And, and yeah. the, the narration is just... Very stodgy old school <laughs> narration. I've been here for 5,000 years. I know what Cleopatra looked like. And it's, you know, it's actually a very interesting narrative, but it's mm. done in a very off-putting way. Yeah, it sounds like it. Uh, did you take any side trips from Giza? Yeah, I did. Um, sure. Uh, let me think for a second about what order things... I think my third day there was the first side trip, and I went to um, Memphis, where Menes founded the first unified capital of Egypt in mm. 3100 BC. Um, now, again, it, it was a, a good and bad, positive and negative situation in that okay, Memphis is an interesting site. There's not a whole lot left to see, but what is there is pretty fascinating. But the drive out to Memphis and then beyond that, Saqqara, is where I saw the first... There's a lot of poverty in Egypt, okay? Yeah. Giza's very poor. Um, but I saw the first really shocking poverty driving out to Memphis and Saqqara. I described that for me. What was that like? Um, mothers walking with children through trash on the side of filthy roads picking out pieces of food to eat, um, kids trying to eke out an existence between burning piles and fields of trash. Uh, and like you're driving along dream Egypt, right? You're driving along this canal yeah. with reeds growing out of it, you know, all of these, you know, well-known Egyptian birds and 
wildlife and uh, just should be what you picture in your head when you think of Egypt. And it's all covered in garbage. Yeah. It's 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 ju- it's filth for acres. Mm-hmm. Um, garbage fields. Okay. Oh, wow. um, and the canal, you know, the water in it isn't good. I'm pretty sure there was a dead donkey in it. Um, <laughs> and just, just, I mean, you see grinding poverty out there. Yeah. Homes that don't just not have roofs. I mean, they're half the height they should be because they've fallen in. And, yeah. you know, you see a lot of stuff like that. Um, and it really, you know, enhances your perspective on the world, yeah. of course. Um but, but back to Memphis, uh, there's a giant statue of Ramses II. Um, and by the way, if you ever go to Egypt, you're going to hear about Ramses the Great for days. And then if you go to the Egyptian Museum and see his uh, little itty-bitty mummy, it's going to be weird. <laughs> <laughs> Ramsey the okay. Uh, um, like, I did, yeah, it, tiny, dude. Oh, wow. Um, but anyway, there's there's this Colossus of Ramses at Memphis. Um an inscribed stela has been set upright at the site. I can't remember what it says on it, but it's it's very well inscribed. Um, there's a sphinx there. Um, I don't want to give it all away because, again, there's not that much to see, but uh, what is there is worth it. There are some souvenir stalls, but as opposed to the situation you'll encounter in Giza and at the pyramids, uh, the souvenir vendors are typically pretty gentle, especially if you're with a guide. Yeah, yeah. And then from Memphis, we went to Saqqara, and I was very stoked about that. I'd wanted to go to Saqqara for decades, right, for years and years and years, um, to see the Step Pyramid of Zoser, uh, supposedly the oldest stone building on Earth. Um, And it is fascinating. Saqqara is such a fascinating site, and in some ways it's more fascinating than Giza. the entrance hall, okay, the, the site, the Step Pyramid and the entrance hall and some of the other buildings were designed by Imhotep, the Egyptian architect. And one of the most fascinating features about visiting this site is that when you go through the en- entrance hall, you're passing between rows of columns, but they're still attached to the walls. The columns are carved out of the walls oh, wow. because people hadn't figured out yet how to make the columns separate from the wall. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, or how to build them in place. They had to carve them out of the wall, and that's mind-blowing to see. And yet the work is as high quality as we could do today. It's it's such a bizarre contrast, man. Um, And they're at at Saqqara. There are hieroglyphs all over everything, Mm -hmm. okay? Um, The outside of places, the inside of things. Um, no hieroglyphs at Giza and Saqqara is much older Mm. so you would think it would be the other way around right that it would develop from no writing into writing Mm -hmm. everywhere it developed the other way and no one knows why oh that's interesting fascinating Um, so the Egyptian culture as it aged they stopped using hieroglyphs around what time do you think well it would appear around the time of the construction of the Great Pyramid, but we don't know that for sure. And one reason is that the fact that there are no hieroglyphs in use at the pyramids doesn't necessarily indicate that there were no hieroglyphs in use. They may have just stopped using them on public buildings, right, at that time. I don't know. I don't know if the answer is no. Mm -hmm. Okay, I don't recall going over it at the Egyptian Museum. 
Um, but it is a fascinating occurrence to think that, especially when you see it, and I'll talk about the tomb of Teddy in a minute. When you see something like that, and then you see Giza, which is much newer and much more vast, and there's no writing, it, it, kind of, it doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's counterintuitive. Um, <clears throat> I went into the tomb of Teddy at Saqqara, and there's a video and some pictures on my Instagram. Um, first of all, I had to back down the stairs into the place. It's not exactly stairs. It's more like two-by-fours nailed to a wooden ramp and called a ladder. Yeah. Okay. Went down it backward. I'm down in the tomb with four or five other people and the guardian of the tomb, the custodian of the tomb, right? <clears throat> Everything is covered in hieroglyphs. Mm. Every surface. The sarcophagus is still in there with the lid pushed to the side. Um, the ceiling of the tomb is peaked and covered in either stars or starfish. I'm not sure what they were, but it was super, super mm. cool and interesting. Um, I was curious about all of it, of course, but I didn't speak anything like enough Egyptian to cover it with yeah. the custodian, um, and he didn't speak any English. Unbelievably, there was this little petite, awesome woman from New Zealand in the tomb at the same time I was, and she was completely fluent in Egyptian. Hmm. And so she asked all of my questions to the custodian who translated, oh, and then great. translated yeah. his answers back for me. Which, and that's just one of those great travel experiences that I'll remember for yeah. the rest of my life, right? Um, but really just an amazing tomb, and yet the pyramid above it has turned to a pile of sand. Mm. It literally is like a 30-foot-high pile of sand that you could walk over and just scoop up hands full. It's that loose. Wow. Yeah. And, and But the tomb, perfectly preserved. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And also, of course, like 45 degrees cooler <laughs> yeah, than, than it is yeah. outside. So you yeah. try to spend as much time down there as you can, <laughs> but they kind of they know what you're doing, too. Yeah. You know, so if you want to spend some additional time down where it's cool and out of the sun, uh, you know, be prepared to tip extravagantly <laughs> to get that. Okay, good advice. Good advice. That's what I'm picking up from this. You need to tip a lot. Yeah, be, do be prepared for that. Yeah. Um, but also just be, and, you know, I'm seeing a lot of stuff that isn't great, right, that's not positive, like about all of the poverty and trash lining the roads and canals as you go out to Saqqara. Um, you, uh, you are going to see a lot of you know, what people in the United States would call third world type conditions. Yeah. And what I would encourage you to do is, you know, soak it in. It's still worth going to Egypt and seeing these amazing sites. Yeah. Um, and, you know, just maybe learn that you have it better even than you realized you had. Yeah. You know, that's all. Always good advice. Um, so out of all these places you visited, did you have a favorite site? Yeah. <laughs> Um, the Sphinx. Okay. Why so? Describe that. Um, and that's the, if I'm right, it's the cat-looking structure with no nose, famously, right? Yeah. Okay. Ma man's face, lion's body. Yeah. Cat-looking structure, that's accurate. Um, <laughs> it's a cat-looking structure. <laughs> yeah. you know? From now on, that's all I'll describe that's it to people. <laughs> keep it in... A big old cat, cat loose, building. Loose parlance. <laughs> um, The Sphinx is astonishing, man. Really? It's just... There is no photograph that does it mm. any justice. Um, 
What about the size of it? How would it's, you describe that? It's so much bigger than you think it is. Really? Yeah. Um, it's, I believe, about 300 feet long. Oh, wow. That's, wow. For non Americans, that's a football field. Or for Americans, I guess. Um, gosh, man, it's. It, you you feel the weight of it when you're standing next to it, you know? Yeah. And it looks so much the same and yet so different from every picture or piece of film you've ever seen. First of all, there's a lot more color left on it yeah. than you would think. There's a lot of red on the Sphinx and pink. Um, and it's painted details, mostly on the head. Um, That's the original paint? Yeah. Oh, wow, they didn't restore it or anything. No. And just... Um, Standing there, having just come out of the Temple of the Sphinx <laughs> and walked onto the causeway to Khafre's Pyramid and turning right and seeing the Sphinx is one of the best moments of my life. Yeah. It's already a peak experience when you come out of the temple onto the causeway and Khafre's Pyramid is straight out in front of you, mm. elevated a bit. But then you turn right and just the, the Sphinx is right there immediately in front of you it it's a shocker man it's pretty moving and i mean you've seen it the whole time walking up to the temple yeah. right but when you're that close to it it's a really different thing man and like <laughs> the dream stele that tutmos the fourth put between its legs put between the front paws of the sphinx is still there it's still perfectly preserved And I was just standing there staring at it, thinking, okay, Tutmos the Fourth put that there 4,000 years ago, and the Sphinx was an ancient mystery then. Mm. No one knew what it was for. No one knew who built it. No one knew why. Yeah. It was an ancient mystery then. And standing there and actually experiencing that is, is, is kind of hard to describe, man, to tell you the truth. Um, and it's kind of funny. I, I never really thought about the size that the Dream Stele would have to be in order to be placed where it is. Mm -hmm. It looks, you know, like a 32-inch TV or something, right? But it's, uh, if you do the math, it's like 12 feet by 7 feet, man. I mean, the thing is immense, yeah. you know? Uh, for, for a granite slab and uh, I just never got to walk up right next to it where I would have known that but I was looking at it thinking it was tiny it's not, it's huge um, it's, it's, it really man, it really is kind of hard to put the experience of the Sphinx uh, in, into words the temple of the Sphinx alone before you even get to the Sphinx itself yeah. is wild, just crazy. You, you know, you think about how long ago in the most recent time it was built and what you're seeing just doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. If you if you consider the idea that we may not know how old the Sphinx is and that this stuff, you know, for all we know might have been built 10,000 years ago, yeah. you know, I'm not asserting that to be the case. I'm saying think about it when you're standing there, right? Then it gets exponentially more interesting right. right because of the construction and 
it appears to be the case that the temple and the Sphinx were not built at the same time. Oh, interesting. I don't know if that's true, but the construction of the temple is a lot more similar to construction at like um, Machu Picchu. Mm-hmm. Um, monolithic blocks with smoothed edges that have been fit together without mortar mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so tightly that you can't get a playing card between them. It's more that type of construction. And it's awesome. You look at the blocks and you think about how heavy they must be, and you stop thinking about the blocks at the pyramids, right? Because the Temple of the Sphinx is indescribable. It's very, very, very much smaller than the smallest pyramid. And you're looking at those blocks wondering, how did they build even these 10-foot-high walls, right? And then you walk through that and you see the Sphinx, and you start having thoughts like, you know, these weren't built by the same people. These weren't built by the same race of people. This thing wasn't built by humans. You start yeah. having all those crazy thoughts, yeah. right? Um, well, so what role do you think aliens had in building these structures? None. <laughs> um, but I will offer this. You know, as I said, there's a lot more out there on the plateau than the pyramids and the Sphinx. All yeah. kinds of collapsed mm-hmm. structures and uh, foundations for structures that were never built or that were later mm-hmm. demolished. Um and I kept finding these stones. I really wanted to bring one home. I know people have, but mm. I just had too much respect for the site to do it. What I'll never understand is why I didn't photograph them, unless I just didn't want my guides to think I was some loony photographing rocks, right? Mm. But out between the Sphinx and the Pyramid of Mancaria, in particular, there are white stones just lying around on the desert floor that are covered in tool marks. Mm. No one ever says anything about them on documentaries about Egypt, right? I've never once heard Zawe Hawass reference one of these rocks or seen anybody pick up one and discuss it. But they're bleach white, bone white, covered in tool marks. And man, I have to say, no, I'm not asserting that aliens built the pyramids. But they definitely, dude, I can't deny, they appear to be rotary tool marks. Mm. Like something, a Dremel. Would do. It's just hard to explain. It's it, it's inexplicable. Yeah. yeah, that's really interesting. How um, did they actually let you go into the Sphinx? Is there any way in the structure available to tourists? I don't know that it's penetrable. No. no. Okay. I'm surprised they actually let you into the the other pyramids and stuff. What kind of security do they have at these places? <sighs> it's a funny word, security. Um, <clears throat> weak, really? uh, in a way. Um, At the actual entrances to the tombs, I don't recall seeing security. There probably was a guy at each one, but the only people I recall seeing were the uh, the people I'm calling the custodians mm. who controlled your ingress and egress, yeah. right? <clears throat> Essentially were there to get tips. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I, I don't know what other purpose they really served, except taking your picture inside the tombs, yeah. right? Um, I don't recall there being a whole lot of security at each respective pyramid or at the Sphinx. There, like I said, there probably was a guard or two. The security is <clears throat> on the perimeter of the site, and it's armed guards mm-hmm. in white shirts. Um, they're called the tourist police. <laughs> um, they are you know, supposedly there to protect tourists in the event that an act of terror or an uprising or a riot or something mm-hmm. like that occurs. Really, the protection the tourists need there is they, they need somebody they can go to and say, hey, get this guy to leave me the fuck alone. Yeah, That's the protection yeah. the tourists need. 
So as far as security protecting the site itself, once you're inside, I don't even really know how to address that, man. It seemed nominal to me. I was surprised there wasn't more vandalism and garbage. That's what I was going to ask, yeah. Um, but apparently a lot of the vandalism or graffiti or anything you see is done by locals. Oh, really? Actually, yeah. And I would see like uh, like little a pile of cigarette butts here or there, yeah. something like that. Like maybe where kids had been hanging out at night or... Maybe the custodian hadn't seen anybody for six hours and had just been smoking the whole yeah. time. You know, it's hard to say. Um, I don't quite know what protects the pyramids and the Sphinx from any given tourist. Yeah. Um, other than fear of going to jail in that place. Okay, that might be a strong enough motivating mm -hmm. factor. That might be all there is. They take that seriously, I'm sure. Well, they, it's not so much that. It's that once you're there, you would you would take not wanting to go to jail there pretty seriously. <laughs> Um, and I'm trying to do some research into, and have been trying to, into what role UNESCO plays in that. Mm. <clears throat> because it is a World Heritage Site. And it's a little hard, it's a little hard to pin down uh, what role they play. Um, I'm working on it. Because okay. so, something, something needs to give. Um, because there does need to be security to protect the site, but... The tourists need some protection from the mm -hmm. from the scammers as well. Okay. Now we talked previously about uh, King Touch treasure. What did you think of that? Is it <laughs> worth it? Is all it's cracked up to be? It is. Yeah, I was actually surprised by how amazing it was, and I've been you know seeing it on TV and in magazines and documentaries and all of that since I was like seven years old, right? And uh, Yes, it is that magnificent. Mm. I was shocked by it, even having seen it on film my whole life. Um, I had kind of mixed feelings about, you know, seeing King Tut's death mask, right? Because I've seen so many photos of it. Um, and I kind of thought, oh, it's just going to seem too familiar when I get to it, right? It's one of the most beautiful objects I've ever seen in my whole oh, life. Wow. It is intensely beautiful um, they really as far as artisans and craftsmen they really had it going on back in the day <laughs> they do their stuff right big time I when you see it I, you won't believe it well just describe it like say say I hadn't seen it before it's, well, okay I had no idea what you're talking about you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark sure, right sure okay you remember the idol's head he finds at the beginning yeah, of course. Um, I would say it is just like that, three times as big, five times as beautiful, with uh, a whole lot of color on it, not just the gold. Oh, wow. Um, extraordinary attention to detail. Uh, very, very, very well made. I have no idea what its financial value is in just gold, but I imagine just the gold value of it is extreme. And so uh, it's solid gold? As far as I know. Actually, I, I, okay, let me tell you what I do know. Yeah. I don't know if the headpiece itself is solid gold. I know that it was formed by hammering gold leaf over a mold. Okay. Okay, so I don't know if there's still something under it mm -hmm. or if it's just a gold mask. Yeah. But if it's not still on a mold, it's 100% pure gold. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and painted, and it has jewels, and oh, it's wow. just so, so worth Seeing, yeah, you know, even though I'd seen pictures of it my whole life, and the rest of King Tut's treasure is really <laughs> pretty impressive as well. You know, like 
you hear in documentaries that his sarcophagus was inside three concentric gold shrines. Right. Well, it's a little hard to picture what that really means, mm -hmm. right? But when you go to the Egyptian museum and you see the gold shrines on display and his sarcophagus and the death mask and, you know, illustrations of how everything came apart and goes back together, it's pretty easy to understand. Yeah. You get it. And it's... it's I would have to think that his family was richer, you know, relatively than the richest family alive today. Yeah. That sounds like it. So you'd say that was worth it then. Now, I'd like to talk about something that I'm really interested in. Um, let's talk about booze. <laughs> uh, you know, that's that's why I came. I wanted to talk All right. about alcohol. Did you, um, that's obviously a Muslim country. Yeah. Um, did you respect the local customs regarding alcohol? I think the Egyptians were shocked by my capacity for <laughs> consumption of beer. As I am. So. I, I'm, I, w I would say. Um, yes, in general, I, I showed respect for their customs. I didn't, you know, drink with abandon in public, for example, okay. or anything like that. Um, I didn't uh, walk around drunk. Um, I drank a lot of beer. Mm -hmm. it, w it was hot. <laughs> You know, in, in fact, it got to the point that the hotel sent somebody to just go buy a bunch and fill up the fridge in the kitchen <laughs> for me. Um, it was 24 ounces, 16 or 24 ounces, and I, I was I was pounding them. Yeah. Um, and then when I went to a hotel in another part of town, a different luxury hotel, uh, kind of wore out their supply as well, went through <laughs> the whole mini bar, and then started calling room service. And uh, I will give them this. Uh, terrifically fast room service in, in, in that hotel mm. in, in downtown Cairo. Literally, I would hear the phone click when I put it down and there'd be two Heinekens at mm. my door. That's interesting. You know? Um, so, I, I did respect their traditions, though. I didn't drink a lot in public. Um, when I was drinking with people, it was, you know, at my hotel in private. Yeah. Uh, and I, I'm not even sure I remember drinking hard alcohol. Um, but yeah, I think to, to, to bring this back around, I was respectful, but I think they were a little taken aback by how much really? beer I could drink. Just not used to it. Yeah. And actually, that's interesting. Now, where where do they get alcohol? Like, it's is it something you have to go to the hotel, or is it something locals could get if they wanted to? Are you asking me is is booze available in the supermarkets? It, sort of. Yeah. And or is there like liquor stores? stores like they have here in Utah? I don't remember. Okay. I don't know. Um, I remember going to stores and buying sodas and stuff. Snacks. I don't remember if I saw a beer. I'm, it has to be available to the public. Maybe they do have to go to bars to get yeah, it. Yeah. I don't know. But there are um, bars there, then. There were bars and hotels. Mm. I, there, there, ha, there, there has to be something. The beer exists. Yeah. Right? And it's Egyptian-made and branded. So, oh, it's okay. So they're drinking it. Yeah. Let's talk about that. How, how was the Egyptian beer? Terrible. Okay. Um, not good. Okay. <laughs> uh... But I kept drinking it. Right. Well, it's beer. You know, yeah. it, it was beer and it was hot outside. Um, but yeah, not the best beer I've ever okay. had. Um, yeah. I, I I could name a couple of of American brands to which it could be compared, but I thought I'll, I'll pass on calling these brands okay. out. Um, let, let's just say that uh, pretty much compared to probably what you were drinking on the regular your first year in college. Okay. Yeah. Good <laughs> natty light. All right. Yeah. Not not. Not high-end IPA. Okay. <laughs> that makes sense. And they did obviously have some imported beer for you. 
Um, not in not in Giza. Okay. No. When, in Cairo, I had some Heinekens, mm. but other than that, Egyptian beer. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. They did have a full bar available at the hotel in Cairo. I just... Mm. Oh! I did have liquor one time. The, this is... I don't know how interesting a story this is going to be or not, but it was... It's one I enjoy remembering. Um, the first time I tried to get actual booze, you know, anything other than beer, I went to this, like, a British pub type of situation in my bar. And, and let me clarify, I stayed in, in Giza the first six days in very, very humble accommodations, and then in a luxury hotel in an area of Cairo called Zamalik, which is a, a very upscale area, um, completely different than Giza. Um, the hotel is on the street where the embassies are. Yeah. So, uh, pretty high end. Um, and I went into this British pub type of gig they had in the hotel. Had a few beers and, uh, you know, steak baguette or whatever. And uh, I wanted to order a cocktail. And I was trying to, <laughs> trying to explain to the guy that I wanted a particular whiskey that was on their menu. And... He said they didn't have it. And I explained to him, well, it's on every menu in the hotel and on every menu in your restaurant. Yeah. I, th with respect, I think you don't understand me and you do have it. Mm -hmm. right? And it, well, it completely was not a cocky conversation. I was trying to you know, help yeah. him help me. Um, and eventually he just kind of nodded and gave me like a thumbs up, thumbs up type of gesture right and went away and he came back and he had a glass half full of liquor and he sat it down next to me. And he went off to another table that had a bunch of people, and he got deeply engaged with them. Mm -hmm. I, I would have called him back over this, but I just went with it. I poured some water in because I didn't want to drink the whiskey neat. And the water foamed up to the top of the oh. glass, right? And I was like, okay, what's uh, – <laughs> like, like I put Alka-Seltzer in yeah. water, right? I was like, okay, what's this going to be? What's in my glass, right? <laughs> but I knew it was drinkable. I knew the guy wasn't poisoning me or whatever. <laughs> so I drank it, and I had ordered a whiskey – and the guy had brought me Ricard. Mm -hmm. And if you don't know what Ricard is, anyone, it's a, it's a licorice-flavored aperitif. <laughs> okay, it might be a digestif, but I believe it's an aperitif. Yeah. Um, but it's meant to be consumed in a small quantity right before or right after a meal, yeah. right? It's kind of like, kind of like if you were in a bar in Germany and you ordered whiskey and somebody brought you Jägermeister. Mm. But there's, there's an even, there's a gulf between whiskey yeah. and, and Ricard. Yeah. And it was just, uh, I don't know, I don't, but hopefully everybody didn't just hate listening to that stupid story, but it was kind of an amusing thing to go through. <laughs> and just sitting there and realizing, okay, I'm just going to drink my glass and shut up and go yeah. back to my room. and Drink not, your busy alcohol. Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad not to be surrounded by terribleness. <laughs> well, actually, you know. yeah, so you, you contrasted the places you stayed a little bit. Tell me more about the hotel in, how would you pronounce it, Zamalek? Zamalek? Zamalek. Um, well, I, saw, I stayed at, uh, at a Hilton. Um, and, you know, here in the States, it would probably be considered maybe an A- minus or B hotel. Mm -hmm. uh, for there, it was high-end luxury. Yeah. Um, Really just your, essentially what we would consider to be your basic hotel room, mm -hmm. you know, with some higher-end um, accessories and stuff. Uh, very different bathing situation than in Giza. Mm. Um, in Giza, I had a corner shower that was barely big enough for me, and as you can see, I'm not a huge dude. Uh, and it had a water tank hanging over it, 
And when the hot water in that tank was gone, you were done, <laughs> right? Because it turned ice cold. Uh, and I did run it out a couple of times. Um, and then, you know, in, I was staying in a Hilton in, yeah. in Cairo in Somalik, and obviously it was very different. It had like a figure-eight whirlpool tub, <laughs> right? Um, big comfortable bed, amazing view of the Nile. Mm. Really high-end pool area, right? Uh, disappearing out over the over the Nile. If you were in the pool, it looked like you were in the Nile type of thing. Um, much higher-end food situation. Yeah. Um, but there was a negative trade-off, too. And that was a very different type of employee at the hotel, mm. okay? Not that the employees were rude or mean or bad, um, but in Giza, the situation is much more familial, okay? They take you in like a brother, Yeah. all right? And everybody at the hotel knows you. Every employee in the hotel knows you and knows your name, um, constantly attending to you, more than you would like, typically, more, more than I cared for. Mm -hmm. um, they introduce you to everybody. They bring in their family and introduce you. Um, part of this is because everybody at the hotel wants a big tip at the end of your stay, mm -hmm. okay? But that's not the exclusive reason. It's because they're humble, gracious people. And then you get to uh, Zamalek, right? Everybody at the hotel is wearing a suit, <laughs> okay? It's very clipped service, very stodgy, mm -hmm. very short answers to questions. Um, but again, I don't mean to imply rudeness, just a real sense of difference yeah. from the situation in Giza. Um, a lot more like a business hotel in the States, but even less friendly. Yeah, okay. You know, um, but much, much more luxurious surroundings. Yeah. Which sure. would you prefer between the two, in Giza or Zamalek? I would, I would have to say, as far as the hotel itself, I'd, I'd have to say Zamalek. Okay, yeah, that um, sounds nicer. But there are, I mean, the, the, the host of reasons for that. It's not just the difference in, <clears throat> you know, it's not just that it's a much newer, nicer property. Mm -hmm. Um Giza has some other issues that Zamalek doesn't have, mm -hmm. like um, trash everywhere. Yeah. Um, everything covered in filth and garbage. Uh, not the people. Um, <laughs> he said everything. But uh, the birds. Oh, wow. You know, all, all, the, all yeah. the Egyptian birds that I looked forward to seeing my whole life, first time I saw them, they were covered in filth. Oh, that's tragic. Um, eating out of, you know, overflowing yeah. dumpsters. Um, and also there's an odor in Giza mm. and I had a friend who's been there five times and he prepared me for it before I went but he told me he couldn't describe it but if I ever smelled it again in my life I would know mm -hmm. it was the Giza smell yeah. and he's right and uh, it's like a miasma it's inescapable right everywhere you go it's yeah. there Some I, I refer to it, to it sometimes as like being trapped in a gelatin of the <laughs> smell it, it's like the air is made of it yeah and I remember when I got to the hotel in Giza thinking, okay, good, I can step inside and I'll be out of the smell. Yeah, no, not a bit. Mm. No such luck, buddy. Oh, wow. <laughs> it was like an international space station full of this unpleasant smell <laughs> stepping into that hotel. That um, so, you know, there are some other reasons to not stay in Giza. I, I do want to be clear. I recommend staying in Giza for a couple mm. of days to visit the pyramids, mm. especially if you want to go more than once because... You don't want to be repeating that drive mm. multiple times. Um, too scary, uh, too long a drive. 
and when you've done it and you step out of the car, you realize you're too lucky to have survived it. Yeah. To want to do it a bunch of times. Yeah. You know. Um, and Zamalik, very different situation. Uh, much, it's a much more modern city area, mm-hmm. although I wouldn't call it entirely contemporary. The area around the hotel reminded me a lot of Paris. Okay. On, honestly. Yeah, tell us about that. How much exploring did you do? Not a whole, whole lot. There weren't any, like, real sites to see, per se, other than the Egyptian Museum, which I did do. Um, I spent a lot of time at the pool checking out the Nile. Hang on a second. We're getting a little interruption here. Okay, sorry about that, folks. We just had a little interruption. Going to be a little edit right there. Um, I believe I was discussing uh, the Egyptian Museum and things to do in Zamalek around the hotel. Um, it's not a whole lot to do. I tried to do some exploring. Um, I'd walk, you know, seven or 800 yards in any given direction um, and wouldn't necessarily find what I'd been looking for. Mm-hmm. But I'd have so many adventures in between. I couldn't leave the hotel and not come back with a story, even yeah. though it seemed like I hadn't really done anything. And this is the kind of thing I'm talking about. You know, keep in mind, I said the hotel's on Embassy Row, right? Mm-hmm. It's where, where all of the embassies in Cairo are located. Um, it's where the really big, major, major hotels are located. Um, there were, there's a couple of casinos, I think. And, you know, if you obviously, if you know anything about Egyptian culture, you know that's incongruous with the surroundings, right? That is for the people who come to visit the embassies. Um, I think it was on my first walk away from the hotel. Uh, You know, as you're walking down the street, you see guys in uniforms holding AK-47s, right? Guarding different Mm -hmm. places. And uh, one of the reasons I chose Zamalik was that it's known for art galleries. And I really wanted to go explore that. And I saw one across the street from me, and I wanted to photograph the sign because I knew I wouldn't remember the name of this gallery. I wanted to photograph the sign so I could look it up when I got back to the hotel and see if I wanted to go or not, right? And I held up my phone to photograph the sign, and I sensed some movement off to my right. And suddenly I'm just getting screamed at in Arabic, just this barrage of angry Arabic coming at me. And I look over, and this guard has come out onto the sidewalk, and he's holding his AK-47 out in front of him like this, oh, wow. right? Yeah. And he's screaming at me. And uh, I told him, you know, mesh, 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 okay, okay, okay. Basically told him, calm down, we have a misunderstanding. I'm trying to talk to him in Arabic, right? Yeah. And uh, he did kind of calm down. Mm-hmm. To his credit, once he saw I was trying to communicate with him in Arabic and trying to be reasonable and yeah. that I was staying calm, he kind of calmed down. And he tried to listen to what I was saying, but I just didn't know enough Arabic to get my point across. Yeah. And I was trying to gesture. 
I was telling him, I'm taking a picture of that art gallery. You know, I want to know more about it, mm -hmm. right? I'm trying to get the point across as simply as I can. He doesn't get it. This guy has a real problem with me having my phone out. Yeah. And uh, so he kind of shakes his AK-47 at me a little bit, right? And kind of, I know what he told me was move on, mm -hmm. right? And uh, I essentially disregarded that. I told, I, to, I told him, you know, please give me one moment to take the photo, and then I'll go away. Yeah. And I held the phone up again to take the photo, and he screamed at me and shook his AK-47 at me right. again. <laughs> and uh, then I understood, okay, whatever he's saying, what he means is, I don't care what you're doing. Right. You can't do it here. Yeah. Right? And I turned around to leave, and then I, the whole picture became clear for me. I was standing in front of the... Iraqi ambassador's personal residence. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, little little adventure just going yeah. on a walk, yeah. and every time I would leave the hotel, something like that would happen. Um, but I can't say it was a really exciting area. No real sights to mm -hmm. see. It was nice to just sit and watch the barges on the Nile. Yeah, you know, and the pleasure craft on the Nile as well. And it just kind of taken the architecture. You know, it's a very obviously different architecture than what what's in Giza. Um, and yet, I could turn away from these fantastic views of contemporary architecture mm -hmm. and see just crumbling slums in Cairo. Yeah. It's very, yeah. very just juxtaposed situations. In fact, on one side of the hotel was my Nile view um, and a view of a lot of other luxurious buildings. If I walked across the hall and looked out the other side of the hotel, crumbling slums. Oh, well. Yeah. Sounds like that's common in Egypt. That's what you've described every place. There's a real infrastructure so yeah. problem. Yeah, you don't see yeah. that when you see it on TV. They don't really focus. Yeah, on it that totally stuff. not. Yeah. It looks. It's a very different thing, and you certainly don't see the filth. Yeah. Um, now, Cairo's obviously Cairo and Giza are not the only seats or cities in Egypt, obviously, yeah. um, and a lot of people who were there at the time I was went on day trips to Alexandria. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> now, Ka, that concerned me because. This was just a couple of weeks after the Palm Sunday twin bombings, okay? Right. Um, and one of those bombings was in Alexandria. Yeah. You know, they were bombing Coptic churches and uh, or Christian churches. And everybody was going to Alexandria, and I've always wanted to go. Mm -hmm. And I, was, I, I passed this time, right? Um, but I kind of wish I'd gone so I had that city to use as an additional point of comparison yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and contrast, right? Because the impression I get, and I talked to a few people who had just come back from there, is that Alexandria was pretty clean, mm. pretty upscale, you know, vacation resort type of atmosphere. Oh, okay. yeah. But I'd have to experience it to be able to say for yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah. next trip. All right, well, thanks for that. Now, a big fear people have going to places like that is local food and getting sick. Huh. Um, you know, I've heard that it's pretty hard to go places like that without getting sick. Did you experience any of that? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I did. I got sick twice. Um, I don't know if it was from the local food or not. Uh, I did eat local land American. Mm -hmm. We can get into that. But um, I had a round of stomach cramps and vomiting and a round of typical traveler's diarrhea. And <laughs> what was really interesting to me was uh, I almost made it, man. I almost made it out of Giza without mm. getting sick. I got sick. Uh, I was sick my last night and then into my last day. Yeah. 
I literally was having diarrhea attacks when the cab was coming to take me to Zamali. Oh, wow. Um, and fortunately, the medicine that I took, because I took an, an antidiuretic with me, mm -hmm. uh, fortunately it worked pretty damn quickly. Yeah. It took total effect in like a half hour. Um, I didn't expect the stomach cramps. And, you know, only two or three times in my life have I experienced what I would actually call stomach cramps yeah. with diarrhea, right? And this was one of them. It was like, like when pregnant women talk about contractions, this is what I imagined. <laughs> um, and that, then I, I'd vomited like 16 times, and oh, I was like, okay, wow. I need to do something about yeah. this, right? Yeah. And I went down to the lobby <clears throat> and explained what was going on. And again, like family. Like family. And they even brought in people to sit with me. They had me down there in the lobby. They're like, we'll get you medicine. We'll, we'll, yeah. we'll go get you medicine. I was like, I, was like I, I guess I can go get it or you know, do what I need to do. And they're like, no, we'll go get, we'll go get it. Don't worry. There was a pharmacy right there, yeah. like next door. Um, and I was like, okay, okay, cool. And they were like, do you need anything else? Oh, and that, there was this buildup to getting me the medicine that was mm -hmm. kind of humorous because they were asking me what medicine I thought I needed. And I was trying to explain Pepto-Bismol to them, mm. and yet nothing gone. They had no idea what I was talking yeah. about. It was like trying to explain rubbing alcohol in France. Um, they think you're trying to get booze. Uh, <laughs> I showed them a picture. I've, after like 10 minutes, I was like, well, I have a s smartphone in my pocket. Why don't I just show them, right? And uh, I showed them Pepto-Bismol. Never seen it before. Okay. I right? had no clue. Yeah. Um, and so finally, I just told them, just, you know, please bring me whatever you would take if you had this problem. Mm -hmm. You know, let's just make this simple. And uh, they sent a runner. They said, anything else? I said, probably a thermometer. I probably need to see if I have a fever. Yeah. And so they got me a digital thermometer. This guy comes in the door like 20 minutes later with a little baggie, mm. hands it to the hotel manager. This looked like a drug deal, man. <laughs> um, the manager hands him these bills, uh, out of, takes a wad, crumbled up cabbage wad out of his pocket and starts <laughs> picking out bills and hands them to this guy. And the guy goes away and they bring me the package and it's pills and a digital thermometer, right? Mm. I figure out real quick my temperature is one degree high. Um, and then I, you know, I try to reimburse these people for the medicine and the thermometer, and they assure me that this is compliments of the hotel. Mm. That would not have happened in Zamalek. Yeah. Okay. Um, in fact, they wouldn't have sent a runner for the supplies in Zamalek, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, I would have had to deal with it on my own. Um, but when things got really amusing was uh, I turned the pills over because they were in a blister pack, mm -hmm. not labeled on the front, right? And I wanted to see what they had given me. And I didn't recognize the name, so I looked it up online. Because on the on the package, there was so little detail that it made me suspicious. Yeah. I looked at the name of the medicine, and it said, available in United States for veterinary use only. <laughs> <laughs> right? And I was looking at these pills and looking at this description like, uh, okay. Um, That's why it worked so well. Uh, actually, I forgot. This is what I did. I pretended to take one of the pills mm -hmm. and then went upstairs to my room to look up what, yeah. what it really was because yeah. I didn't want to seem like a rude bastard when yeah. they'd gone to all this trouble for me, right? And the first thing I see is, in the United States, used uh, in veterinary use only. Yeah. And I was like, uh, and I've got this thing pinched between my lips still, right? And I'm like, um, <laughs> okay, well, where am I going to go from here? And I thought, okay, we'll see what, see what the usage is in Egypt mm -hmm. or in, uh, in Europe, right, and in, in the U.K. And I flipped to that, 
over the counter in the UK. Oh, okay. Um, available with prescription in the rest of Europe. Right. And I was like, okay, this is going to be very, very strong. Yeah. <laughs> uh, probably going to have some adverse effects, but it's going to take care of the problem, I'm sure of yeah. it. Um, I was asleep like 20 minutes after I took it. It knocked me out. Mm. Um, but before that, in that small amount of time, I felt the stomach cramps go away. Right When I woke up, I wasn't vomiting anymore. Um, they'd been knocking on the door to my room, and I hadn't been responding, <laughs> right? So when it said for veterinary use only, I think that was because of the strong narcotizing effect. Oh, yeah. It definitely worked on the stomach cramps mm. and the vomiting. Um, but, yeah, I would say if you, especially if you go to Giza for six days, um, which don't, um, expect, <laughs> expect to get sick and certainly expect some traveler's diarrhea. Uh, get some horse medicine? Yeah, take some, take some veterinary medicine. Take a vet with you. There you um, go. If, if you happen to be a veterinarian, Egypt's the place for you. You, you don't suffer from a thing. Um, I was really kind of sketchy about the food, yeah. to tell you the truth. Um, I didn't know what to expect. And uh, <clears throat> my first experience with an Egyptian restaurant was started out sketchy and then got so good. My first experience eating there was actually at KFC. There's a... <sighs> There's a KFC across the street from the pyramids, okay? Mm. <laughs> and uh, I ate there, and it's it, first of all, has a very scaled-back menu You're right, right. compared to you know a KFC in the U.S. It has like six different items. And I'll remember it the rest of my life for two reasons. One is that I reached for my fries, and one of the fries was kind of sticking up on its own out of the basket. Mm-hmm. And on the tip of that fry sticking up was a winged ant. <laughs> cleaning its wings and I remember looking at that going because I've seen all this garbage and stuff around too right and I'm like that ant's been in that garbage (laughs) but damn it I have to eat these fries (laughs) right I had no choice I had to eat man and uh, also during that first meal the call to prayer went off Mm. right and um, I had to wait I finished my meal and I had to wait to put my tray in the tray return because a local man who was eating at the KFC had responded to the call to prayer and had rolled out his prayer mat and was doing his prayers immediately in front of the tray return. <laughs> and you didn't feel comfortable. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I totally didn't want to be disrespected. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that's probably never going to happen again in my life. Yeah. And, and I'm glad to have that yeah. experience and I'll remember it forever. But uh, my next experience with the food was at an Egyptian restaurant and it was... <laughs> You know, I told you about driving along the canal out to uh, Memphis and Saqqara and uh, the filth and the garbage yeah. and people eating from between burning piles of rubbish and all that. And uh, when we're leaving the Red Pyramid, my guide said, okay, we'll be stopping back in Saqqara for lunch. Mm. And in my head, I'm thinking, oh, no, we fucking will not be, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Um, but he kind of reinforced it yeah. a second time. And uh, I realized, okay, this is going to happen. I'm not going to try to control this, right? And they needed to eat, right? It was Ramadan, man. They wouldn't even take water from me yeah. because Ramadan was coming. So I knew, I knew they had to eat, right? And so I just let it go. And we stopped at this restaurant in just the middle of all the filth and uh, got out. And the restaurant was kind of a relief, actually. We ate outside under a patio, and it was actually fairly cool. It was much cooler than right outside the patio. Yeah. And uh, I was very, because I have some pretty serious food issues anyway, 
and it's my weakest point as a traveler. I was pretty sketched out about having this meal, right? Yeah. I looked at the menu. A lot of stuff I didn't recognize, a fair amount of stuff I did. I just decided to go with mixed grill. It mm-hmm. seemed safest. And a mixed grill is um, uh, it's lamb and chicken. Okay. Uh, and it comes with a bunch of sides, pickled vegetables, different rices, all kinds of stuff. And the sides were really good. Um, I don't believe I can't think of the name of the dip for the pickled vegetables. But it, I didn't think I'd like it, and I did. Um, but the food came, and I'm sitting there going, okay, it's the moment of truth, right? <laughs> These guys are eating. Okay. And I took a bite of the meat, and it was delicious, right. man. <laughs> you know? And uh, I thought, okay, I've crossed the threshold. Now I have to walk into the house. <laughs> and I uh, tried some of the sides. They were really good. Mm-hmm. Um, I tried the chicken. Awesome. Um, really good meal. So I was not afraid to eat anywhere again. Okay. Especially if I knew mixed grill was an option. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And everything came with rice. And uh, oddly enough, <laughs> French fries. Oh, weird. Yeah. It yeah, was, was kind of strange. Like everywhere. Yeah. Um, we went to this Chinese restaurant. <laughs> on another day. Um, and uh, I ordered mixed grill. And uh, came with a whole plate of French fries, man. It was the strangest yeah. thing. And they're not popular in Egypt. I don't know if they were giving them to me because I was an American, if it's something they just served to all tourists, or what the deal was. But, yeah, everything came with fries. So even if I hadn't been able to eat the food, I would have been... I would have been able to have the fries. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I would have been able to get something in my stomach, yeah. yeah. I, I do want to offer this, though. Part of how I stayed alive in Giza, okay, because of the food issues, and before I, the idea that, okay, this food is pretty much all edible to me had really sunk in, was uh, sunflower seeds and beef jerky. Brought <laughs> <laughs> from home. Yeah. I didn't know what was going to go on, right? I didn't know what the food situation even was. So I took a bag of beef jerky with me Mm. and a few bags of sunflower seeds. And my advice to you if you have any type of food issues and you visit Giza is take a bag of beef jerky and a few bags of sunflower seeds. Always good advice. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Now, um, what would you say is your highest and lowest point for this whole trip? We'll start with the biggest high. Um... Definitely visiting the Sphinx. Okay. Yeah. So that was your favorite I'd, I'd have to say. Um, yeah. Again, just... Uh, you you know I don't normally get stuck for words, mm-hmm. right? And it's just... That is true. It's, it's indescribable. Um, I would like to continually have that feeling of mm-hmm. stepping out of the Temple of the Sphinx onto Khafre's Causeway... Mm-hmm. And turning around and seeing the Sphinx there, I'd like to be able to feel that every day. Yeah. You know, um, going to all of the ancient sites was the high point, mm-hmm. right? Every one of them was a high point, including all the stuff I saw in the Egyptian museum. But the the Sphinx, there, there's just something indescribable and powerful mm-hmm. about it. You know, um, as far as the low point. Uh, not t- not including diarrhea, we'll assume. Yeah, okay. <laughs> this was a lower point, actually. Um, the low point is really all of the being hassled by everybody at the pyramids yeah. And, yeah. and the Sphinx, all the, all the people ar- around the main site in Giza. 
It is intolerable. Yeah. And I was prepared for it before I went, or thought I was. Mm -hmm. I knew about it. I knew what went on. I knew some of the scams. You know, I knew different things they were going to do to get to me. I think the problem was that when I was there, they didn't have enough people mm. on whom to focus and really focused on me, especially once they figured right. out, hey, this guy's staying longer than two days, mm. right? Um, You're the cash cow. Yeah. It's really, it's utterly intolerable. Mm. Um, and the last guy <clears throat> who got me pushed me to the point that had this been the States, I, I know I would have put my hands on him. Mm. Um, I'm not saying I would have assaulted him or hit him. I would certainly have put my hands on him and physically pushed him back away from me and told yeah. him to stay there, though. It's, it's really aggravating, and it's deeply saddening because for a lot of people, and I've read, I don't know, a thousand reviews online, right, and talked to a lot of people, um, watched a lot of people's follow-up videos after their visits, these people literally ruined the experience. Mm. And at times they did ruin it for me. And... It's a dream experience. You wait your whole life to go to Egypt, right? And these guys, believe me, do not care that they're having a negative effect yeah. on your vacation. Um, they do not care that these ancient, wondrous sites should be respected and observed and admired by tourists. They only want to interfere mm -hmm. and try to get money off of yeah. it um, <clears throat> every way they can. This last guy, the one I would have put my hands on, when he was walking along the inside of the fence as I was walking along the outside and he was badgering me into hiring him. I mean, in three seconds, I heard all these things come out of his mouth. I am a guide. I am not a guide. I am only a person to make sure tourists get through security. I must walk into the pyramids with you from security. Yeah. It just, it's, it's intolerable. Mm -hmm. And that was the low point of the vacation. And... Uh, my last night in town, as a matter of fact, I was watching a local news station that was in English, and these two Egyptians were on being interviewed, and um, I can't quite remember who they were, if they were from the tourism ministry or members of the government. I don't think they were members of the government. And they were talking about how disgusting and sad it is that Egyptians ruin visiting Egypt yeah. for foreigners, mm -hmm. and particularly Cairo and Giza. And they were talking about how the experience most tourists have is being unrelentingly harassed and robbed from the time they step off of the plane. Now, they tried to get me with that. Remember I mentioned the taxi guy? Yeah. The guy who was yelling at me that he was my ride, yeah. right? <clears throat> um, he was just a taxi guy. Uh, Sorry, folks, we've been interrupted again. There's going to be another little technical edit. Um, I was talking about the, uh, the low point of the trip and the constant harassment and scamming in Cairo and Giza. Uh, and the two gentlemen who I saw on TV the last night of my trip, um, they were talking about how sad that phenomenon is and how disgraceful to Egypt it is and that they felt disgraced as Egyptians watching people go through this. And they were saying that normally the, the average ex tourist experience is from the time he or she steps off the plane being scammed and robbed and harassed unrelentingly, and I can see where that's undoubtedly true. Um, I happened to have hired a driver to take me to my hotel, or they might have gotten me with the, what 
these guys were describing as the very first scam, which is uh, a taxi pulls up. You know, when you, when you flag down a taxi, the taxi pulls up to take you wherever you want to go. Tells you what the price is going to be before you get in the cab. When you're halfway to where you're going, the cabbie tells you the real price. Mm. And you're sure as hell not getting out of the cab. Yeah. Not there, right? Apparently, that is the initial scam most times. Now, what I did experience was the rest of it, right? That it never stops from there. That from that point forward, it's people trying to scam you or harass you or get something out of you the whole time you're there. And that really is a low, low point. Yeah, that's a shame. Um, and it does ruin these dream vacations for people, you know? Um, my first trip to Egypt was supposed to be in 2002. Uh, that all changed in September of 2001, mm -hmm. you know, for obvious reasons. I have waited and dreamed since then of going and doing this trip. And those people were an unacceptable component yeah. of the trip. The government needs to do something. UNESCO and World Heritage need to do something. But... Really, that's in the hands of the local government, according to the way UNESCO does things, mm -hmm. if my understanding is correct. And, you know, you just you realize well before you get to Giza that the government has bigger problems. Yeah. You know, but the government could get a lot of money flowing back into its pockets from tourists by repairing that problem, I yeah. think. And, and, and I want to be clear, you know, we're about to close out here, but I do want to clarify again. Don't let these things keep you from going. You know, if you want to go to Egypt, if you want to go see the pyramids and the Sphinx, and you want to see Saqqara, and you want to look out over Dashur and see the Red Pyramid and the Bent Pyramid, and you want to go see King Tut's treasure, go. Go do it. Just know that you're going to spend a lot more than what comes off on paper when you add up the costs. Because everybody wants something. You're going to be tipping people all day and all night, every day and night. Um, be prepared for the scamming. It is as bad as you've always heard, but don't let it stop you from going. I definitely recommend going, okay? Go see these sites. And when you get back, publish reviews of everything. You know, do something like what I'm doing. You know, try to let the world know what you encountered when you went there, and hopefully in the end, Egypt will be a, an even better place. Travel Commando out. <laughs>